reaching up, reaching over, and reaching out. We are New Life Christian Fellowship. For service times, articles, or recordings of our weekly messages, please visit us online at www.nlcfchurch.org. This message is brought to you by Kevin Weeb. We are on the final message in our series in Ezra today. But the book of Ezra and the book of Nehemiah were, all, were originally kind of part of the same book, the same story. It's the story of the people returning to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple and also to rebuild the wall around Jerusalem. They happened around the same time, and the character of Ezra shows up as well in the book of Nehemiah. So our passage, while we've been kind of walking through the book of Ezra, our passage today, our passages are mainly in the book of Nehemiah. I want to begin by telling you a story about a lady named Sally. Sally was a stay-at-home mother with three toddlers. Can any of you imagine having three toddlers? I know some of you don't even have to imagine. Some of you have lived that or are living that. Sally had three toddlers, and one day she decided, I'm going to clean up our house with these three toddlers. And you know what? It went very, very well. They went to their rooms, and they tidied up the toys. They went to the living room. They tidied up more toys, and the kids were uh, helping to make a game out of it, to put the toys back in the bins, and to organize the books, and they had a grand old time They had a quick lunch that Sally had prepared for the children ahead of time. And afterwards, she thought the kids had done so very well that she wanted to reward them. So they went out for the afternoon to play in the park, to go out for ice cream. And these these toddlers were all tuckered out. They came home. They had a nap. Sally even had a nap. After they woke up from their nap, Sally read them a book and everything was going great, and then she looked at the time, and she thought, well, it's time for me to make supper. So she sent the kids to play. And Sally went to the kitchen. She took a pot. She started to fill it with water, and as soon as she turned off the tap, she realized the house was quiet. (laughs) And when the house is quiet after you've sent the toddlers to play, then you know you have a problem. She turned her back for just a few seconds. And when she left the kitchen, she realized all the house was a disaster. All the work they had done all morning was completely undone. She had left her back turned for just a moment. And everything she had worked so hard with their children to do was now undone. Toys were scattered all over the floor. Books were just pulled off the shelf. Well, as with toddlers, they will clean up sometimes when mom is there to help. But they don't do it just because they want to. Now, thankfully, as children grow, um, eventually, for most of them, they find their own reasons for wanting to clean up. Now, not all of them, but for some of them, they find their own reasons to want to clean up. And sometimes it only begins after they have homes of their own. And they want to live in a clean home and actually clean up for themselves. But sometimes this, this 
they have to find this kind of internal motivation, a reason within themselves to actually do this kind of thing. And toddlers don't usually have that kind of internal motivation. As we'll look at today, the people recommitted themselves to God, but it didn't take very long before the backsliding started for the people of Israel. Let's dive in to our main passage for today, Nehemiah. We'll start with uh, in chapter 8. In Nehemiah chapter 8, we're going to just start with verses 1 to 3. We're going to be reading kind of select passages here. Um, So in Nehemiah 8, 1 to 3, it says, All the people assembled with a unified purpose at the square just inside the water gate. They asked Ezra the scribe to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had given for Israel to obey. And so this is why Ezra had come to Jerusalem. Remember, he came to teach the people the word of God. So on October 8th, Ezra the priest brought the book of the law before the assembly, which included the men and women and all the children old enough to understand. He faced the square just inside the water gate from early morning until noon and read aloud to everyone, to everyone who could understand. All the people listened closely to the book of the law. Then we'll jump down to verse 7. Kind of describes who was there for a little bit, uh, who all attended, the different names of the people, um, that they praised the Lord together, they bowed down to worship the Lord, and then in verse Seven, um, the Levites, Jeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Echab, Shabbatai, Hodiah, Messiah, Kalida, Azariah, Josabad, Hanan, and Peliah then instructed the people in the law while everyone remained in their places. They read from the book of the law of God and clearly explained the meaning of what was being read, helping the people understand each passage. Then Nehemiah, the governor, Ezra, the priest and scribe, and the Levites who were interpreting for the people said to them, Don't mourn or weep on such a day as this, for today is a sacred day before the Lord your God. For as the people for the people had all been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. And Nehemiah continued, Go and celebrate with a feast of rich foods and sweet drinks, and share gifts of food with people who have nothing prepared. This is a sacred day before our Lord. Don't be dejected and sad, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So they had found in the law that this was a festival day, a feasting day, a a day of celebration, okay? They're reading the law and they discover today, of all the days of the year, today is a day for celebrating and feasting. Yet, as they're reading the law, they also come face to face with the fact that they had not been living out God's law. They discovered that they had been living in violation of God's law. They had been living in a way that God did not approve of. And that was the reason for the weeping and the crying. The very sins that Israel had committed, the very disobedience, the very heart of rebellion that had gotten Israel removed from the promised land before. And now the people were also living in ways contrary to God's law. And so they hear the word of God being read and taught They finally made it back to the promised land and they realized how they had been living. And this brought great grief and sorrow to the people. And yet, this is supposed to be a day 
for celebration. Well, how are they supposed to celebrate on a day like today? Well, Nehemiah gives this advice. This is a sacred day before the Lord. Don't be dejected and sad, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Okay, he uses this word strength. This doesn't quite capture it, you know, the word strength. Remember what they had just done? They had just rebuilt the temple and they had just rebuilt the wall around Jerusalem, okay? Why do you need a wall? You need a wall as a defense. You need a wall as a refuge. Why would you need a refuge? Because there's enemies around that would attack. You need a refuge because there's danger all around. You don't need a wall when things are good. You don't need a wall if, there's, if it's just a garden of Eden, a paradise with no dangers anywhere, right? You wouldn't need a wall for that. You would need a wall if you're in a dangerous place. You would need a refuge if you, in fact, need safety from the things that are pursuing you. So they built the wall around Jerusalem to protect them from who? We looked at this a few weeks ago, from the enemies that were, in fact, all around them. And so this word for strength is a word that can be translated as refuge or stronghold. And so Nehemiah is drawing their attention to this fact that we just built this stronghold. We just built this wall. Let the joy of the Lord be like that protection for you. Let the joy of the Lord be a stronghold for you. Yes, there was sin that they would need to repent of. Yes, they would need to commit themselves and recommit themselves to following God's ways. But part of following God's ways was in fact celebrating that day. And so allow the joy of the Lord to be their stronghold, their wall, their refuge. We come to chapter 9, and it kind of summarizes the story of God's people up to that point. So on the 30, it says on October 31st, the people assembled again, and this time they fasted and dressed in burlap. So now they've come past this time of feasting, and they begin fasting. They confess their sins and the sins of their ancestors. They recognize the error in their ways. And then the rest of the chapter kind of summarizes their story. This is a common thing that happens many times throughout the scriptures as, as we come to pivotal moments in the history of God's people. You might remember the very first martyr of the Christian church. His name was Stephen. He was one of the deacons of the early church, and he was martyred for his faith. And as he gives his sermon, just before his death, he summarizes the history of God's people, including the birth of the church, including Jesus Christ, up till that point, sharing the gospel in the context of this much larger story, right, that now includes Jesus and the church. And so chapter 9 is this kind of summary of what was going on. And then towards the end of chapter 9, we get this. It says this, So now today we are slaves in the land of plenty that you gave our ancestors for their enjoyment. We are slaves here in this good land. The lush produce of this land piles up in the hands of the kings whom you have set over us because of our sins. This is their prayer to God. They have power over us and our livestock. We serve them at their pleasure and we are in great misery. 
the people responded, in view of all this, we are making a solemn promise and putting it in writing. On the sealed document are the names of our leaders and Levites and priests. So here they promised to be faithful to the Lord. It was their sin that got them into this mess. So now they are going to return to God in the hopes that faithfulness will get them out. There was a promised Messiah to come. And so now they are committing themselves once again to the Lord. And they write it out in this document. They write out the names of their leaders. And they commit themselves to following God's ways. Making this solemn promise and putting it in writing. Beautiful, really, actually. For them to recommit themselves to the Lord in this way. To show such um, remorse and, and repentance. But it doesn't take very long for the same patterns, these same ancient patterns, to reemerge in Jerusalem. If we jump down just a few chapters to chapter 13, we get to the end of Nehemiah. And it says this in Nehemiah 13. We'll read verses 6 to 13, just a little snapshot of the end of this story. Nehemiah tends to go on and on at the end of this. And um, he's a little bit long-winded in some of this. So I'm just giving us a little snapshot about some of the instances of, of, of the sin that Nehemiah saw. Because he had left Jerusalem and then he came back and he, he kind of goes on and on about all the different things that he was, he was seeing. I was not in Jerusalem at that time, for I had returned to King Artaxerxes of Babylon in the 32nd year of his reign, though I later asked his permission to return. When I arrived back in Jerusalem, I learned about Eliashib's evil deed in providing Tobiah with a room in the courtyards of the temple of God. I became very upset and threw all of Tobiah's belongings out of the room. Then I demanded that the rooms be purified, and I brought back the articles of God's temple, the grain offerings and the frankincense. I also discovered that the Levites had not been given their prescribed portion of food, so they and the singers who were to conduct the worship services had all returned to their fields. I immediately confronted the leaders and demanded, why has the temple of God been neglected? Then I called all the Levites back again and restored them to their proper duties. And once more, all the people of Judah began bringing their tithes of grain, new wine, and olive oil to the temple storerooms. I assigned supervisors for the storerooms, Shelemiah the priest, Zadok the scribe, and Pedeah, one of the Levites. And I appointed Hanan, son of Zakur, and grandson of Mataneah as their assistant. These men had an excellent reputation, and it was their job to make honest distributions to their fellow Levites. Remember this good deed, O my God, and do not forget all that I have faithfully done for the temple of my God and its service. So the story of Ezra and Nehemiah ends in this very sad way. It's really quite depressing. After all of this, this is how it ends. We have all of the stuff that happens, that they, they return to Jerusalem they struggle and struggle and struggle, but God helps them to rebuild the temple and they overcome all of these obstacles. They rebuild the temple. They struggle with rebuilding the wall, but they overcome those obstacles too. They rebuild the wall. 
They're taught all of these lessons in the meantime, and they finally come to a point. They recommit themselves to renewing their, their commitment to God, to renewing their worship of God. And we get to the end of this really difficult, this really difficult story, this, this journey that just seems like it goes on for a long time. So there's Ezra and Nehemiah here, but also remember, we also touched on the books of Haggai and the books of Zechariah, which were prophets sent to Jerusalem in this time frame too. They were prophets sent to remind the people, hey guys, this work that you were called to do, you've stopped. You focused on building your own houses while the temple of God lies in shambles. You haven't finished that work. Let's get back to work, guys. And they're sent to send the people back to the duties that they were supposed to do. Because this is over the span of years. And so there's Ezra, Nehemiah, Haggai, and Zechariah, four books of the Bible, all in this one story. And finally, we get to this point where they rededicate themselves to the Lord. And then just a little while later, Nehemiah thinks everything's in order. He goes back to his job working for the king of Babylon. He asks the king of Babylon, can I go back and check on my people? And he comes back and no one's even working in the temple anymore. The Levites were not receiving the tithes and offerings to support them, right? That was how things were supposed to be. The Levites didn't receive an inheritance of land in the distribution of land like all the other Israelites did. Um, At least not nearly as much. They had some cities, but they didn't receive the same allotment of land like the other tribes of Israel. Their inheritance was to work in the temple for the Lord. And then all the other tribes of Israel were to tithe. That's giving a 10% of what they grew of their, of their um, income to the temple. And that would provide for the work of the temple and provide for the Levites to do that work. Well, they stopped giving to the temple. The Levites were forced out to go and, and find alternative work to provide for their families. And they, all kinds of other things started to happen. These other people started using the temple for things other than the worship of God. The articles of God's worship were taken out of the temple. This other guy had his stuff moved in. And Nehemiah comes back and there's all of this stuff in disarray. Not to mention all kinds of other things that were going on. Um, Nehemiah found that the people were... The Israelites were making slaves of other Israelites who were poor, which was also a bad thing going on. And he's there, he's setting all of this stuff straight as he's, as he's, as he's there. there there's, there's more. There's even more. And this is how it ends. He comes back, and it only took a few years for everything their, their commitment, everything that they had committed themselves to, to just be out the window and things to go back to the old ways. And we're left kind of like, what? This is the end of the book? Why? We like our happy endings. We like our stories to be wrapped up with a nice tidy bow. We would much rather spend time in the book of Ruth where at least it ends with something really happy. Where, you know, at the beginning... 
uh, we have the tragedy of Ruth and Naomi, but then at the end we see how God took care of them, right? But in Nehemiah, it ends with just nothing. We end with this kind of hopelessness. What this book shows us is that we are all born with the capacity for evil in our hearts. There is simply no way around this. Every single human being is capable of committing great evil. This isn't something that is particular uh, to Israel at this time in history. Okay, This isn't something that's just unique to them. That, ah, well, they're an especially bad people back then. We can't just look at them and say that. That would be very unfair. It's not just... Israel back then. This is the tendency of all of us. Pretty much all the time. We like to have these ideas of progress or these ideas of evolving. You know, we use this kind of language that we're evolving over time or we're making progress, but on our own, we tend to devolve or, or regress instead of progress. We don't tend to get better with time just left on our own. It takes a great amount of work and commitment and follow-through and dedication. It is not easy to make progress. It is not easy to grow in our faith. It takes so much time and dedication. It takes that dying to ourselves every day. It takes that recognizing that sin is lurking at the door. That we have an enemy seeking to devour. We are all born with the capacity for evil in our hearts. Romans 3.23 reminds us, for everyone has sinned, we all fall short of God's glorious standard. The story ends this way not because God wants to be depressing, but because God wants to point us to our need for a Savior. We need to be pointed to our need for a Savior. Israel had gone into exile, they were in need of a Savior. Bringing them back to the promised land did not change the fact that they were in need of a Savior, a Messiah. And the story of Ezra and Nehemiah shows us very clearly how desperately they, in fact, needed a Savior. Earlier, while the people were in exile, the Lord had sent a prophet to them. Let's take a look at what he had to say. In Ezekiel 11, when the people return to their homeland, they will remove every trace of their vile images and detestable idols. And I will give them singleness of heart and put a new spirit within them. I will take away their stony, stubborn heart and give them a tender, responsive heart. So they will obey my decrees and regulations. Then they will truly be my people and I will be their God. This promise in Ezekiel, it finds its ultimate fulfillment in Jesus and in the giving of the Holy Spirit. 
this isn't this isn't something that that can be done on our own. We can't just become the people of God just by willing it into being. This happened because of Jesus and the spirit that he gave to us, his Holy Spirit. Some translations say, I will remove from them a heart of stone and I will give them a heart of flesh. The people of Jerusalem needed more than just the law. They needed a change of heart. This is why these things kept happening again and again and again. Remember the toddlers at the beginning of the story? That's why there's those messes again and again and again that don't get cleaned up on their own. There's an amazing thing that happens once a child grows up and begins to actually like to have their toys cleaned up. You don't even have to tell them to clean it up. They just do it on their own because they don't want to have a messy room. And when that happens, when they want their room to be clean on their own, from within their own heart, then they clean it on their own, right? Just like with the Lord, when things change in our own hearts and things begin to happen on their own. And that's why we need a new heart. That's why God gave his spirit to us because we can never do it on our own. That's why we can try and try and try. That's why we can sign as many papers as we want. We can write as many decrees as we want. We can make as many public statements and declarations as we want. But until we receive that new heart from the Holy Spirit, it will never be enough. We need that new heart, the Spirit of God living in us. Here's another prophet from the Old Testament, Joel 2, 28 and 29. This is the passage the Apostle Peter quoted on the day, on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit was given to the church. This was where the fulfillment of these promises came to life. Then after doing all these things, I will pour out my spirit upon all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams and your young men will see visions. In those days, I will pour out my spirit even on servants, men and women alike. It is the spirit that changes our hearts and lives from the inside out. That keeps us from backsliding. Keeps us following the Lord. We too need more than an outward change of behavior, but an inward change of heart. This is the most important thing. We can talk about outward behaviors till we're blue in the face. We can talk about lists of things that we should change every Sunday for the next 10 years. But if there's no change of heart, then it's all for nothing. If we do not have the Spirit of Christ dwelling within us, then it's all for nothing. 
When we become complacent and rely on our own systems and our own rules rather than the life-giving Spirit of God, we are once again in danger. And this happens so easily, even for those of us who've been walking with the Lord for a very long time. Because walking in step with the Spirit is hard. It's unpredictable. It's scary. You ever read about the life of Paul in the book of Acts? Sometimes he wants to go somewhere and the Spirit leads him elsewhere. It's not easy to walk in step with the Spirit. And we can become complacent. We can just trust our systems and our rules and our policies. And it's not that these systems are bad. It's not that our policies are bad. I'm the first to admit churches need policies. I like having policies. They make so many things easier. (laughs) But we cannot rely on them more than the Spirit of God. If we do that, we are in grave danger. We are in grave danger. Paul writes to the Galatians and he says, So now that you know God, or should I say now that God knows you, why do you want to go back again and become slaves once more to the weak and useless spiritual principles of this world? You are trying to earn favor with God by observing certain days or months or seasons or years. I fear for you. Perhaps all my hard work with you was for nothing. Dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you to live as I do in freedom from these things, for I have become like you Gentiles, free from those laws. See, the Galatian church was wrapped up with observing all kinds of rules and laws and thinking this is how we must follow Christ. We have to observe this law and this law and this law. And Paul says, don't get wrapped up in that. You're free from the law. Live in the Spirit. He says, it is for freedom that Christ has set you free. In 2 Corinthians, Paul writes this. He says, he has enabled us to be ministers of his new covenant. This is a covenant not written, not of written laws, but of the Spirit. The old written covenant ends in death, but... Under the new covenant, the Spirit gives life. The old way, the laws etched in stone, led to death, though it began with such glory that the people of Israel could not bear to look at Moses' face. For his face shone with the glory of God, even though the brightness was already fading away. Shouldn't we expect far greater glory under this new way, now that the Holy Spirit is giving life? If the old way, which brings condemnation, was glorious, how much more glorious is this new way, which makes us right with God? See, the people of Israel in Ezra and Nehemiah, they had recommitted themselves to the Lord and they had, they had the law, but it just wasn't enough. It wasn't enough. And so they fell away again, just back into this old pattern. And that's what is going on. That's what Paul is talking about. The law wasn't enough. That's why a Messiah had to come. That's why they needed Jesus. That's why we need Jesus because our rules and our laws and our policies are not enough to save us. 
We need God and we need his spirit in our lives ever so desperately. Always stay close to the heart of Jesus. Always. No matter how emotional we get and we rededicate ourselves to the Lord and we have these ceremonies and we have these these marks in our faith, these moments in our faith, and they're good. Days like our baptism where we publicly commit ourselves to following Jesus, these are good days. These are good moments in time and we are told and instructed to do these things in in the scriptures. But as we move on in faith and as we grow and mature in faith, let us not grow complacent. Let us not rely once again on laws. Let's not do what the Galatian church did or what Ezra and and Nehemiah's, those books warn us against here, those, those things we see where they just went back to those old patterns of, well, we'll just rely on those old ways and stray from them and do what we think is best. No, let's stay close to the heart of Jesus. Let's allow God's Spirit to lead and guide our hearts. Always, today and every day. As we close this series in Ezra, this this series, this I know it ends in a kind of depressing way. There's no big uh, um, joyous ending to these books, but that's how the Lord saw fit to write them. But it reminds us of our need for a Savior, and it reminds us of our need for a new heart, for a need of God's Spirit to lead and guide us each and every day. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you have given us your spirit. And Lord, I pray that we would be a people that stays close to your heart. Lord, be with us this morning and always. In Jesus' name, amen.